0: This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information visit www.imsb.org Tonight the title of the talk is Clarifying the Mind and this is part of the Buddhist Fundamentals series that we're now roughly in the middle of and we're doing a series of six talks about well fundamentals in Buddhist practice And as I've said nearly every week, we never really um, get past the fundamentals. So this is completely appropriate for everyone and that we just go deeper and deeper with the the most fundamental topics. And maybe it can be said that the goal of practice is to actually understand all the fundamentals. So the process of our practice is, could be said to be one of purification in, in some ways. We're purifying our actions and speech through following the ethical precepts, and then that lays the groundwork for purifying or clarifying the mind in meditation. This type of mind that's become clear is highly competent and powerful. In fact, it's powerful enough eventually to all see all the way through to the end of suffering. It's important to understand, though, that If you think about impurity, we're not impure in the sense of original sin. Uh, Actually, the murkiness of the mind in a given moment is being created right in that moment, and it can end right in that moment also. Basically, those murkiness uh, just arises from strong habit that we haven't yet seen through. So the purification process is one of slowly, slowly changing the habit patterns in our mind. It's useful to understand the most common habit patterns that get in the way of having a clear mind. And that's what I'm going to discuss tonight, which are often called the five hindrances. I'm going to use an analogy that the Buddha used, that of water, which is why I emphasize that in the meditation instructions Basically we can think of clarifying the mind as settling and depolluting a bowl of water so that it becomes pure and clear and open. So those of you who have a bent for uh, water pollution issues this might be, you know, especially motivating for you perhaps. <laughs> and in addition I'd like I'd like to emphasize how the five hindrances manifest in both gross and subtle forms. That's going to be a little bit the theme, is that often, you know, each hindrance, which I'll name in a moment, uh, just has one name. But what we may not realize is that they come in many different forms. They come in first in kind of loud, obnoxious forms that are very easy to see. But when those have been settled out, there are still subtle effects from these very same tendencies in the mind. And they get subtler and subtler as the mind refines So you're not quite done with them for a while. (laughs) And it's important to be able to recognize the different forms of them. In fact, we're taught in our practice to observe how things change. That is one of the most fundamental Buddhist practices. And so that includes how they shift over time and how they change with the state of the mind. So put in the language of water pollution, once the uh, kind of large-scale dirt has been filtered out, there's still the fine-scale sand and silt, and then there's even impurities that you can't see, chemicals or something that are uh, still lurking in there that need to be cleaned out. The grosser forms of the hindrances tend to be full-blown thoughts that attract our mind, and we go on and on about them. But in, in the subtler form, they're more like energetic leanings of the mind, energetic movements, and in the very subtlest form, they're just very slight flickerings or leanings, And if you hang on until the end of the talk, I'm going to tell you why none of the hindrances is actually a problem. So so polluted water. Here's a quote from the Anguttara Nikaya put into modern language by Andy Olinsky. The mind is luminous, but is polluted by the toxins that are dumped into it. So... This is uh, again the idea that the mind is not some kind of original sin but it's been it's been polluted by things that have been added to something that was originally more pure. And then this image of polluted water is elaborated upon in in a different sutta which says suppose there is a bowl of water and then it goes on to describe the water as impinged upon in some way by various external factors. It's dyed with color, it's boiling, it's covered with weeds, it's stirred up by the wind, or it's muddy. So these, um, under each of these circumstances, the sutta says, if a person with good sight were to examine his or her own facial reflection in it, they would neither know nor see it as it really is. So these are essentially, these problems with the mind are essentially distortions of our view or of our understanding of what's happening. So these external factors that muck up the water are analogies for each of the five hindrances. So let's go through them with the idea that we're going to be able to identify them. So the first is sense desire. That's a pretty big one, right? Who doesn't have sense desires here? So this is the basically the inclination of the mind toward objects that are alluring in some way, attractive. And this says, the sutta says, this is like a bowl of water mixed with lac, turmeric, blue, or crimson dye. So maybe you've heard of rose-colored glasses. This is the same idea. I mean, we have the similar idea in English, right? Is that when you have some kind of a pretty view in front of your eyes, that's, you know, that's what you see. And it's maybe a little distortion of the truth. So in its grosser form, sense desires, things like lust, fantasy, uh, wishing to obtain certain sensual pleasures, uh, thoughts about desirable objects, and it tends to manifest as tension in the body, you know, this kind of wanting. As an example, one time, uh, when fairly early in my practice, it was v- very dramatic. I had this dramatic experience of sitting, and I was really noticing that my mind was getting calm, because that was like an unusual thing. <laughs> and so, so I was like, wow, you know. I was really kind of starting to enjoy it. And... And out of nowhere, you know, just bubbling up out of the mind, came a thought of sense desire very clear and um, it was so interesting that my um, so my posture was in a good posture, it was both alert and relaxed. But when this thought flowed through my mind, my posture actually collapsed, and kind of like you know I, I just felt the energy kind of drain out of me and move toward the desire and you know just drain away from the concentrated state. It was really bizarre actually. (laughs) But it gave me a very clear example of you know what happens, this is what happens to the mind when something like this floats through is that the concentration is just gone. At the finer level sense desire still appears, it becomes a sense in the mind of leaning, straining, pushing or holding and it can get very subtle even if the mind is very very calm there can be these little you know movements toward things. Okay, the second hindrance is called ill will. It's kind of the opposite. So basically this is the inclination of the mind away from uh, disturbing or unpleasing objects. And it's said to be, in the sutta, like water being heated over a fire, bubbling and boiling. Even in English we may refer to anger and hatred as a hot, you know, boiling, fiery kind of feeling. So we, you know, we understand this viscerally, I think. In its grosser form, ill will is things like hatred, anger, envy, resentment, and it manifests as pain or solidity in the body. You may have felt this. At a finer level, it's kind of just a feeling of resistance. Also, maybe is a little bit of a wind drag or holding in the body, You know, like things were trying to flow, but there's some resistance to it, like driving with the parking brake on. Sometimes, um, at this more, even more subtle level, levels, objects will get a little bit vague. And this is not the vagueness of sloth and torpor, which I'll talk about next. And there, the vagueness is the grosser form. But th- when the mind is actually refined, if there's a feeling of vagueness, often it's actually ill will or aversion. And what that is, is it's, um, the mind is turning away and trying not to be there. So that's, that's why it's an aversive reaction and it's not, the, um, it's not the vagueness of sloth and torpor, but it's actually a subtle vagueness that um, comes with the delusion of the belief that disconnecting is a solution, is possible, basically. So the mind believes for a moment that it can be separate from the object and it can turn away, and that delusion appears as a vagueness. It's very interesting. Okay, the third hindrance is um, sloth and torpor. And these are the mental factors that contribute to sluggishness, sleepiness, or laziness of mind. And they're likened to water that's covered over with plants and algae. (laughs) Have you ever had a mind like this? (laughs) This one is actually insidious because it masquerades as peace and calm. And it's actually pleasant. (laughs) This hindrance is pleasant. I mean, it's fairly obvious that ill will is unpleasant. And sometimes sense desire is pleasant, too, except when it gets really graspy. But, Ill will, I mean, a sloth and torpor can actually be pretty pleasant. In its grosser form, it's like falling asleep, <laughs> accompanied by a feeling of heaviness or fog. I mean, I've, I've had times when it felt like every time I was, would try to bring my attention to the object, there'd be like this veil moving over my, my attention, usually after lunch, for example. More subtly, there's a phenomenon called sinking mind, which is a state of over-calm. Basically, you start enjoying the calmness of the initial concentration a little bit too much, and the mind just sinks down and stops paying attention, essentially. Basically, you don't have uh, sufficient energy. Even more subtly, um, there can be a tendency of not wanting to engage, so... There's kind of a passivity that feels like non attachment or equanimity, and people can mistake it very easily, but it's actually a little bit lazy. So, sloth and torpor is um, always caused by, always associated with a lack of diligence, of not keeping with the object, not staying with the task, basically. Restlessness and remorse is the fourth hindrance, and this is the opposite of sloth and torpor, and so it's identified with. Water stirred by the wind, rippling, swirling, churned into wavelets. We probably know this one also. In its grosser form, this is things like anxiety, hyperactivity, and incessant internal chattering. And in, in a physical form, sometimes your body might feel it want, like it wants to leap off the cushion. You, know, you can't stay sitting. My teacher once said that, he was meditating and he had an almost uncontrollable urge to go defrost the freezer. <laughs> like this was, you know, so important while, while he was sitting, <laughs> you know, he couldn't wait. <laughs> and it, you know, that was sort of what his mind grabbed onto, but it was really, it was restlessness of just wanting to get up and, you know, was trying to give him a justification for doing that. In its, um, in its finer form, restlessness is things like not wanting to put down habitual thoughts, so you have something that your mind keeps going to that's not the object. A fluttering of mental activity. Even when gross thoughts have ended, there can be a feeling in the mind like it's fluttering or flickering, even if you don't. it doesn't form into a full thought. Uh, Distractability of various kinds. It's interesting that because restlessness is basically any tendency to leave the object, it could be seen as almost the root hindrance because they're all about leaving the object. But restlessness itself is defined as wanting to leap off the object. So it's actually the last hindrance to go. So if you have restlessness, don't worry, but uh, it's going to be with you for a while. (laughs) So it's definitely one to get to know because you'll be with it for a while. Uh, The fifth hindrance is doubt and that one is the hindrance that causes us to lack confidence. So we question ourselves, our teachers, our practice, our friends, uh, anything else really. And it's said to be water that is turbid, unsettled, muddy, or placed in the dark. So this is a mind that's just you just can't quite see. You know, you literally can't connect with what's happening. Not because you don't want to; you're turning away. But there's just like, it's just can't quite see it. Uh, on its gross level, it's things like it comes in the form of lots of questions and discursive thinking. Uh, doubt has a very interesting internal logic of its own that um, goes around and around. It doesn't go in any particular direction. And so you find yourself thinking the same thing again and again, and you follow the logic trail and you get back and then again. And one thing that's very insidious, um, even at the gross level about doubt is that it masquerades as wisdom. So, right? So these are, doubt has a lot of lawyers. And it'll tell you a lot of reasons why you shouldn't be meditating, why your teacher didn't tell you the right thing yesterday, and why the instruction you heard probably isn't really going to work for you, even though it worked for somebody else. You know, and there's a lot of convincing that goes along with this kind of thinking. And you can spend all your time just thinking about that. And then you decide, well, I can't really practice this. I'm going to have to go back to my teacher and ask a bunch of questions because I don't think this is right and blah, blah, blah. So if you don't recognize that that's just doubt... I mean, then you're not going to be able to meditate in that moment. Remember that what what matters is what we're doing in the moment. And if you do need to go ask your teacher a question later, that's fine. You can set that intention. But your practice at that moment is that you're supposed to be focusing on your breath or sitting in meditation. So once you've made that intention, you should let it go and come back to the object. If you can't, you're caught in doubt. At the finer level... Doubt is actually a feeling of wavering in the mind. A sense of not being sure where to, tr- where to place your trust, or how to practice with a new situation. Meditation all the time is going to bring us into new areas of our mind, new situations that we're encountering, and doubt will cause us to lack confidence in something that we haven't seen before. If it's not seen, doubt will be the breeding ground for, for fear and agitation around this kind of uncertainty. So doubt is considered to be the most dangerous hindrance because in times of doubt, the conditions for the mind's natural clarity and reflectivity are so hampered that the mind doesn't really function anymore. It can actually cause you to leave the practice, basically. It's the most dangerous and it's also the first one to go, which is kind of interesting. This could be because it's extremely painful. Most people don't necessarily tune into the pain of doubt, but if if you look at it, it's actually really, really unpleasant really uncomfortable to be that uncertain that unconfident and so my th- suspicion is that it has to do with why it's the first to go it's interesting to note that at the finest level all of the hindrances start to look or feel the same right did you notice that almost everyone i started using a hand gesture like this you know you get to some point and then there's this like slight tendency to do this or that slight slight leaning, slight wavering, slight grasping, slight pulling away, something like that. So at some point, when the mind gets settled enough and you start, then what's important to notice is not so much exactly which hindrance it is, but just notice that, that's that energy in the mind of starting to move, starting to flicker, that's what matters. So they all feel like a gathering of energy within calmness, or a dispersing of energy within an otherwise smooth and compact mind, or a dulling of an otherwise clear view. Basically, it's any marring of the beauty of the mind. So if you start seeing that happening, you know there's a hindrance and it's a good idea to do something about it. So once we've identified the problem, (laughs) there's the matter of working with it or addressing it in some way. So basically, we have a dual project in, in meditation of uh, tranquilization and purification. So that's this is the bowl of water analogy. You have to tranquilize the ways in which it's stirred up and then purify the ways in which it has poisons or other things mixed in with it. The first part of purification actually occurs off the cushion. So we have to develop diligent ethical behavior in order to ensure that we're not dumping a lot more pollutants in and getting to the cushion and not being able to sit because we feel restless and disconcerted about what our actions have been that day. But then once we're on the cushion, we use the meditation to quiet the mind and allow the surface to settle into a reflective plane. That's the tranquilization part. But then we're not done. Then the quality of the water also needs attention. And for that, we need various supportive factors like mindfulness, effort, other sorts of things, keeping to the water analogy, we have to look for the presence of toxins, so that's mindfulness, looking for what's there. And then once we find them, we have to neutralize them in various ways. Sometimes just seeing is adequate for um, neutralizing hindrances. So you notice that the mind is gone to sense desire and you and the mind just says, "Oh, I don't want to do that," and turns back. Or you notice that you're feeling, annoyed, and by noticing that, uh, the mind releases that because it's painful. However, that doesn't always work, does it? <laughs> so just in case you need something else, fortunately the texts offer a huge supply of antidotes for us. And I'll go through some of them, but you know we won't, we won't have time for the complete set, but I hope to give an indication that, they, that you have a lot of options essentially so basically what we're doing is we're, we're cultivating an antidote to a particular hindrance. So in the case of desire, we're cultivating non-attachment. You know, that's the opposite. And ways to cultivate that include practicing generosity. That's off the cushion. Uh, reflections on non-beauty. So if you're really caught up in how beautiful something is, find something about it that isn't quite so beautiful and you know, focus on that. Uh, physically or even mentally, it's about opening and relaxing, getting you know, pulling away from that tendency to grab onto something. For ill will, the uh, antidote is loving kindness. So that's the opposite of an, a mind of ill will. And this can be brought about by reflecting on beauty. So something that you find annoying or unpleasant, find something that's not unpleasant about it. Find something that's beautiful about it. I remember a story that um, when Jack Cornfield was first a monk, there's a rule for monks that you always have to bow to somebody who was ordained before you, even if it was just by one day. And so he found himself needing to bow to people that he this was when he was a new monk, that he didn't have any respect for, basically. You know, somebody who he knew had not ordained for the purpose of liberation, but they had ordained because the food was better at the monastery and you know, things like that. And he, but they had ordained the day before him, so he needed to bow to them every time he came to them on the, on the walkway. And so at first he had a lot of resentment about this or feelings of ill will towards some of the other monks. And this was not healthy for his own mind. He knew that. And you know, the situation wasn't going to change. That was the rule. So what he did was he found things about these people that he thought were beautiful, like an old rice farmer who was just there doing his time. He found that, that he could bow to the wrinkles in the man's face that represented years of you know, hard work on the farm and raising his family and really being involved in his life. And he could bow to that experience and that wisdom that was embodied there regardless of his own ill will and that that was helpful I remember also that one time I was on uh, a long retreat and I was having some judgment about how my practice was going, you know, self-judgment, and I found it helpful simply to bring to mind how wholesome it is to meditate and to be on retreat. And so even though I, you know, whatever, for whatever reason I wasn't thinking that my practice looked very good at that moment, I could remember that overall what I was doing was really wholesome. So there was something, something beautiful there to pay attention to. And similarly with desire, um, opening and relaxing physically is a wonderful way to counteract feelings of ill will. For sloth and torpor, the antidote, the opposite is energy. Not surprisingly. And there are a huge variety of techniques for this. You can get the feeling it must have been a very common one. Uh, there's things like uh, doing walking meditation instead of sitting, opening the eyes. Uh, it gets really challenging. You can splash water on your face. You can uh, look at light. It's around... Another Jack Kornfield story is that he was having trouble falling asleep in meditation, so his um, teacher made him meditate sitting on the edge of a well. (laughs) He didn't fall asleep. (laughs) Right there, looking down. So you might try something like that. Okay, for restlessness, um, the opposite is tranquility. So that can be cultivated through focusing on the breath, for example, what we were doing at the beginning of the meditation today, relaxing the body, often opening the awareness to a larger scale. So sometimes um, restlessness happens because we're trying to confine the mind when it's not calm enough to be in a small space. And so just opening, including sounds, for example, including whole body can help to ease restlessness into, uh, into tranquility. It also helps if you explicitly notice the feeling of relief that comes from doing that. So a mind that's restless is actually really uncomfortable and agitated. And if you open or relax in some way, even a little bit, if you focus on how relieving it feels to do that, that encourages the mind to keep going down that path and not keep putting energy into the restlessness. This is a really good trick in general, is to notice the pleasantness of coming back to the object or of cultivating an antidote. Okay, for doubt, the opposite thing that needs to be cultivated is confidence. And this can be done by talking with a teacher, for example. It's very common. There are a number of stories in the suttas where um, people decide they're monks and they decide at some point that um, they're going to leave the path because they want to go back and be with their friends and have decent food and, you know, relax and... Inevitably, the Buddha shows up and you know points them back. But that's that's a metaphor for you know when you're feeling doubt, when you're feeling like I can't do this, I'm going to do something else. Talk with a teacher and just be re-inspired, essentially, because something made you go and meditate in the first place, and that's still possible. That potential is still there within you. You've just lost touch with it temporarily. Um, if you're sitting, and so it's not possible to immediately do something like talk to a teacher, it's possible to recall teachings, um, bring them to mind. This is why we're encouraged, one of the reasons that we're encouraged to memorize passages that we find inspiring from the suttas. So if you like something and you know, have it, say, stuck on your wall next to your computer, bring it to mind while you're sitting. If you have a feeling of doubt, come through. You stuck it on your wall for a reason, didn't you? <laughs> so you know, bring it to mind, remember that. There are also various reflections that can be done if your mind is doubtful, if you're lucky enough to catch the doubt. And one of them is uh, doubting doubt. So if you're going to be doubtful, why not go all the way and doubt those thoughts that are doubtful, you know? If you're going to doubt the teachings, you can doubt the doubt. I've heard this suggestion. I've tried this, and it worked pretty well. I think for, for me it works pretty well for light doubt, but isn't quite powerful enough for really serious doubt. So I have another suggestion for that which is a little bit more homeopathic. Um, and I, I alluded to this earlier when I mentioned how painful doubt is. And that is that if you are brave enough, turn and actually just turn right into the doubt and feel the pain of the insincerity that lies at the core of doubt. You know, We don't necessarily think of doubt that way. You know, we, We're so busy caught up listening to all those lawyers in our mind. <clears throat> but essentially, at the core of doubt lies an insincerity to practice, an insincerity to our original intention of wanting to purify our mind, of wanting to settle our heart, of wanting to develop ourselves spiritually. We're questioning that. We're questioning our own spiritual potential. Isn't that painful? We want to be whole. You know, We want to be in, have integrity and be doing something that we believe in, that we know is right, that we feel good about. And thoughts of doubt are actually going against that very, very deep wish within us. And so if you uh, can feel the pain of that insincerity, the mind will drop it. So give it a try sometime. That's strong medicine. So a lot of what I talked about, about cultivating various things for the five hindrances, um, those those work pretty well at these sort of gross level of hindrances that you're going to encounter when you sit down. What about at the finer levels? At the, when the mind is actually pretty settled and you start getting these little waverings or leanings, it's actually too strong, too agitating to try to cultivate something. You know, if you feel your mind starting to pull away from the object and you say, oh, that's ill will, I'm going to say loving-kindness phrases, you know, your, your mind might actually be so settled that uh, loving-kindness phrases are too much to put words in there, for example. So there, it's more uh, that you have to rely on the seeing that I talked about first, just seeing the hindrance and letting go. And the way that this is made effective at the finer levels is by having continuity of mindfulness. So if, you're, if your mind is pretty refined, but you're missing every fourth moment and that, that one's filled with ill will, your, your concentration's going to get stuck. So by, ha- but by having continuous mindfulness for many, many mind moments, you deprive even the subtle hindrances of the energy that they need to keep forming. And so it's the continuity of mindfulness more than the identification of the particular hindrance and applying the antidote that you need when your mind gets more refined. It's pretty difficult to entirely shut off the source of toxic influences in our mind. I mean, that's the work of a Buddha, to really completely end those But there are plenty of ways, again I'm going to use Andy Olinsky's words, that we can stem the flow, working each moment to calm the waters, siphon out the debris, and catch glimpses of what the world looks like when the mind is able to let it all come and go without attachment, appropriation, or interference. Everything becomes luminous when we clarify the waters and let all things be just what they are. So... This begins to point towards what the hindrances actually hinder. And remember that the sutta with the water analogy says, if a person with good sight were to examine his or her own facial reflection in the water, they would neither know nor see it as it really is. So seeing things as they really are, this is a stock phrase in the in the canon. And the mind that can see things as they are is the concentrated mind. That's always what it's linked to, or, or in, conversely, When the mind is concentrated, it leads to seeing things as they are or as they have come to be. So that means that the hindrances are hindrances to concentration. They are not hindrances to vipassana. (laughs) So this is the part about why the hindrances are not actually a problem. Okay, so here's the secret. Um, If you see a hindrance, you are doing vipassana practice. And that is actually what leads to liberation. Concentration doesn't lead to liberation. So if you're seeing a hindrance and you know that your mind is angry, for example, now you could just be angry about the fact that you're not concentrated. (laughs) Because this is a hindrance. Oh my God, I have anger. I'm not going to be able to be concentrated. But don't worry. If you're seeing the anger, you're doing Vipassana practice. You're doing insight practice. And that, actually seeing the anger and being mindful of it, is the beginning of being liberated from anger. So... It's actually very, very good. There is a significant turning point in practice when you are happy to see hindrances because you would rather see them than not see them. Mm -hmm. If you don't see them and they're there, you're lost. (laughs) But if they're there and you see them, then you are clarifying them, purifying them, moving toward liberation So the reason that all the hindrances look the same at the finest level is that they all have the same source. Uh, it's always unwise attention. That's the cause of all the hindrances. So we fall prey, for example, to sensual desire when there's a pleasant experience and we attend to it in an unwise way. We attend to it in a graspy way that doesn't note that it's a pleasant experience and just leave it there. You know, We're not cutting the chain at feeling, but we're allowing ourselves to go on to to grasping and clinging and so forth, and eventually to suffering. In the same way, doubt means attending unwisely to things that cause doubt. And if you didn't attend unwisely to them, the doubt wouldn't be able to grab on. So they come from either poor attention or wrong intention. Those are the two. Attention and intention are the keys. So sticking with mindfulness practice actually helps us to see the hindrances when they arise from which they will naturally calm down. Um, sunlight is said to be the best disinfectant. So seeing the hindrances initially or applying an antidote if needed, but that's really how you, how you work with them. So you know, even though all of these are hindrances to concentration, I recommend mindfulness as the way to work with them, and that, this is why mindfulness comes before concentration on the eightfold path, is that mindfulness... You know, excellent mindfulness of what's going on in your mind settles out all these hindrances and allows the mind to become concentrated. So may you have no hindrances, or if that's not the case, (laughs) may you see them clearly, especially whether they're they're full-blown thoughts or just the slightest leaning of attention. These things are a normal, natural part of the mind, the unenlightened mind, which... I am assuming all of us have you know we can become friends with them and gradually reduce their power, so thank you very much there 's enough time for some comments or questions yeah you 've brought up a really important point, which is uh, for the benefit of the recording, I'll re- repeat a little bit of what you said, which is that to um, ask what the difference is between skeptical doubt and uh, inquiry, basically, good questions. And it's important, you bring up a really important point, which I, I'm happy to be able to clarify, which is that the hindrance doubt is always means skeptical doubt. And skeptical doubt can be identified by its tendency to uh, turn away from investigation. So skeptical doubt causes us to turn away, to shut down, or to look down upon things. Mm-hmm. So if you have any of those three going on, it's turning you away from investigation. Investigation, on the other hand, leads toward more questions, leads toward opening, toward openness, toward wanting, genuinely wanting to understand. Like, I, like for example, in, in your question which was a great question, I could feel that you really wanted to know the answer to that, and you really wanted to kind of work out, you know, what is this, what is that? So right there, that's a great question. I've also heard questions from people where I had the sense that they were it was more of a a challenge from a position that they weren't intending to change. Mm -hmm. That indicates some hindrance there. I mean, it's okay that that was happening in their mind. It's not a condemnation of them, but... It's, they didn't see that there, there was that doubt going on, and they had a closed way of asking. Yeah, I was going to say an openness yeah. versus a closeness. So I, there's a little story about that that might be helpful. Joseph Goldstein, who many of you know as a, a well-known Vipassana teacher, was um, he at some point quite you know quite far into his Vipassana practice. He took some teachings from a Tibetan teacher. He he went over and um, and learned those, and he found that they um, challenged his, what he understood from his own experience of vipassana practice. So this was very challenging for him because he knew things from his own experience. And so those, you know, that's the deepest understanding in, in Buddhism is that you've really personally experienced something. And he was being told by a, a very famous lama that this was not so and that this, you know, these other things were true or this other way of seeing things was the way to see it. And so he had a, a, a real kind of um, dilemma going there initially. And however, at this point in his practice, um, Joseph had no more skeptical doubt. He was definitely past that. And so he, he took this as a, a need to explore more fully. You know, maybe he, he went back to his own experience, and he said, maybe I didn't quite deeply enough understand these experiences that I've had such that I can understand, you know, such that I would be able to open to these other teachings that I'm hearing. And he took it as an inquiry. And the result of all this is his book called One Dharma. So, and if you're interested, I, I recommend it. What he did was, he, um, you know, he really tried to extract the essence of the Dharma teachings, such that they could, such that he could hold these two things that he knew, you know, that what the Lama was telling him and his own personal experience. It's a fascinating book, but that's an example of encountering something that directly challenged what he thought he knew and opening to it such that his own understanding grew and deepened and he you know, became someone who knew more about Buddhism than he did before. Yeah. Yeah, so, so the question is about sloth and torpor that seems to come up because of basically working hard, you know, having a, having a job. You're tired at the end of the day and you sit down and of course you start to fall asleep. And so uh, how can you work with this or how can you determine if it's a hindrance or, or what? One thing that people sometimes do is cultivate energy right before sitting. So do some yoga, do some walking meditation, something to enliven the mind a little bit because often the dullness that we feel at the end of the day, it's true, it's tiredness from having made decisions during the day and had to run around a bit. But sometimes it's just dullness that comes from focusing on something that's a little bit challenging to be with for a long time, and we forced ourselves to be with it. And then somehow that same mode comes in when we sit down to meditate and we say, okay, I'm now gonna be with the breath. And it's like, oh, and I just had to be with that computer screen all day. (laughs) And so the same patterns come in, right? So, um, yeah, so cultivating energy of some kind is useful. And also, um, cultivating joy in some way. So sit down and the first thing you do is recall everything that you're grateful for that day. Or think about someone you love, your family, something, or you know, the Buddha, something that's inspirational that kind of gives you a sense of uplift to brighten the mind a little bit before sitting and then that will counteract the sloth and torpor. At the same time, we're a sleep-dead culture and almost everybody needs to sleep more than they do. So another solution is to meditate before you go to work. You know, meditate right when you get up. If you're going to be tired anyway, get up half an hour earlier. (laughs) And um, I found that meditation over substitutes for sleep. So actually, if I get up a half hour earlier, it's worth, and and meditate instead, it's worth more than sleeping for that half hour. Yeah, so it's, um, so those are a few ideas. If you're really, really exhausted, uh, it's okay to take a nap. <laughs> the Buddha does say that. If there's nothing else is working. So definitely don't start beating yourself up or being tired. Anyone else? Yeah. Chronically in the future, yes. Restlessness and worry. Well, hindrances aren't really isolated. I mean, we talk about these five because that's broadly how you could divide up the whole set of reasons that the mind leaves the object. But it's very possible to have a multiple hindrance attack where, you know, they they tend to stick to each other. I mean so once you have some worry going then it's easy to start doubting whether or not you're going to make the right decision about what you're worried about. They they glom onto each other so easily and then you start wishing that you really just had a job with more money so you wouldn't have to worry about this and you've got desire going too. So the the antidote for this is to realize that that's what's happening first of all, uh, and to, uh, to, to maybe take whatever strategy seems to work the best. So the, a good strategy for restlessness and worry is to, to focus on the breath. You know that that's a very calming. It's a calming sensation usually for most people, and so it, that's helpful. But if if for some reason the doubt is more prominent, even though it started with worry, but the doubt becomes bigger, then apply something that's more you know, more related to that, whatever works for you. Yeah, just to question, to question it a little bit. That can be helpful. Although it's unlikely you'll be able to completely counteract all of its arguments. And it does, if you, um, if you start putting energy, just as a little warning, if you start putting energy into thinking, you know, you're basically taking the bait of the lawyers so you, you, um, you might just need to say no at some point. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. Okay, those are both good questions. Um, the first one is to clarify the relationship between mindfulness and concentration. And then the second is to uh, consider h- what to do when sitting down on the cushion both in the near term, like what will I do today, and then also having an idea for the long term of how will I cultivate my practice. So to start with the, the first, mindfulness and concentration are very much... Did you ever play with one of those... Uh, have one of those things when you were a kid where you pull on the two strings and the teddy bear climbs up the strings? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you've seen a toy like this, but it's, a, it's got two ropes through it, and as you, as you pull them back and forth, the teddy bear climbs up. So they're like that. They're, they're interrelated So cultivating one will strengthen the other and vice versa. But there is nonetheless a reason why mindfulness comes before concentration in the Eightfold Path, which is that um, you do need to notice what's happening with the mind first in order to begin settling out these hindrances. I'm not saying this is an absolute level and an, an absolute distinction, but and in the early parts of practice, like when you first sit down and your mind feels agitated and it's not settled or, you know, doing anything, you know, you're just trying to gather it basically, then mindfulness and concentration practice are extremely similar. The, the instruction in those cases, in both cases, would be to just come back to the object when you're off of them. When you're off the object you just come back. But eventually there gets to be a difference in the instruction between the two, so the instruction for concentration is always to return to the object always to keep the object in mind and not pay attention to what the distraction was, right? So if you find that you're not on the breath, you just come back to the breath. The instruction for mindfulness practice may be to do that. You know, you're mindful that you're not on the breath, so you come back. Or you may notice what it is that's happening that you're not on the breath. Oh, I'm thinking. Oh, I'm remembering. Oh, I'm desiring pizza. You know, that kind of thing. So you notice what it is that took you off. And so that's that's more an example of mindfulness practice. But that kind of extra note of what was happening, not relevant for concentration practice. It's one more thing that's not the object. So you want to immediately bring your mind back to the object. So that's a little bit of a distinction in the instructions. What I'm going to give you is several different answers, because there isn't one. Another way that people sometimes think about practice, and this addresses your point about sometimes saying that concentration is what enables being able to do mindfulness or vipassana practice, is to make a distinction between mindfulness practice and vipassana, which I actually kind of like. So you begin with mindfulness practice of noting what is happening in the mind, oh, I'm thinking, body sensation, memory, feeling of heat, anger. You know know what's happening as it goes along then eventually the mind becomes concentrated and that kind of noting activity is not needed and when the mind gets really really settled then we turn it towards vipassana or insight practice which is specifically about noticing the arising and passing of phenomena. In vipassana practice we're not concerned about labeling what it is that's happening or applying antidotes to things that aren't the designated object. Instead we are noting something arising, something staying, something passing away, the changing nature of phenomena. That's true Vipassana practice. So if you want really fine distinctions between different types of practices, some people will say it's mindfulness, concentration, and Vipassana are three distinct ways of practicing. But not everybody likes that kind of terminology. And so I'll end by going back to saying that mindfulness and concentration are intertwined and you, you're not, you can't have one without the other. There's no way to have a mind that's concentrated that's not mindful or a mind that's very mindful but is not concentrated, not possible. They're always, they always go together in some way. So you cultivate them together, again like the teddy bear climbing the string. So when you first sit down, it's generally a good, definitely a good idea to have in mind what you want to practice that day. However, I think that it's a little bit like, at least at the beginning of practice, it's a little bit like having a plan for what you're going to do in a foreign city when you're on vacation. You know, you get up in Paris the first morning. What are you going to do? Well, you've got your map and you've got your book and you've got your plan of when the bus comes to get to the Eiffel Tower. And, you you know, you kind of have an idea of what you're going to do that day. But if you rigidly stick to that, it, the vacation's not going to be that much fun. You have to have some spontaneity also of realizing, you know, maybe it like starts pouring rain on the way to the Eiffel Tower. And you think, you know what? I'm going to go do the art museum first. And so at the same, in the same way, if you sit down, you have the intention of doing concentration practice, but you have this explosion of anger that you didn't know was there because it had been building all day, you might just do a little bit of loving kindness first you know you have to be responsive to what's actually there in the conditions of your mind so you know i don't recommend that you necessarily rigidly stick to one idea ahead of time that that amounts to not dealing with reality now the opposite extreme I'll, for the, for balance i'll say that the opposite extreme is that you sit down and you say well you know i think i'm going to stay with the breath But after five minutes, it's like, you know, this isn't really working. I think I'll do loving-kindness practice instead. And then you do a few phrases, and you say, eh, not that into that. You know, I think I'm going to try hearing, hearing. Let's do hearing meditation. I heard about that last (laughs) week. You know, and after 20 minutes, you haven't done anything, you know? So that's not a wise way to practice either. So there's, um, there's a wisdom in working with the mind. And the way you can tell if what you're meditating is effective is, you know, is the mind gathering? Is it becoming clearer? Is the water less murky, less algae-filled, less agitated? And are we aware of what's happening in the mind? Even if it's not becoming less agitated, are we at least noticing that as opposed to just completely being caught? Are we in the present moment? So that's kind of how to work with the mind at a, um, on a moment-to-moment level. And then at the broader level of how you want to plan your practice overall, that's something to work with a teacher on. I would say that's the, short, that's the shortest answer um, since it's a longer answer than that, but probably working with a teacher is a good idea. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit org slash donate.